Good morning. I'd like to add my welcome to Kevin's. I'm Zach. I'm the director of family ministries here. It's an honor to get to bring the word to you this morning. I'm excited to turn our attention to these parables. Uh, before I do, I wanted to share a few announcements with you. Uh, first, we have Kirk and Anna Norris with us. They're two of our missionaries, them and their lovely children that we have supported for many years in their mission work in Ukraine, ministering to college students. Uh, they have uh, accepted a new call, and we'll get to hear about that in the future. But if you would, while they're here, take time to get to know them if you haven't already uh, and get to meet them. Secondly, uh, we have a fundraiser going on to benefit our building campaign here at the church. There's a bit of a war between the children and the youth ministry. Uh, the way that we have structured this, and by we I mean Rebecca has structured this, is that I have to pull for the kids because if they win – then Rebecca gets dumped with ice water, and if the youth win, then I'm the one that gets the ice bath. And so uh, basically you need to go and put all your change via a child. Uh, you can't do it yourself, but put change in the kid's jar, not the youth jar, okay? Um, but the deadline for that I think is next Sunday. Am I getting that right? Wednesday. Wednesday. It's this Wednesday. So uh, so kids, go and put your cutest smile on and go, and go and work the older folks in the room for their spare change, okay? This morning, our passage, we're going to be looking at Matthew 13, 44 through 52. If you uh, don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be a hardback black Bible there in the chair in front of you. You can find today's passage on page 819. Uh, while you're turning over there, I want to give you just a little bit of context, remind you of where we're at. We've been going through Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a series of parables that Jesus gave on the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is something that Jesus talks about a lot in his teaching. And when we think about a kingdom, we think about a mighty nation with geographical boundaries and a strong army that defends and conquers by force. And that's what Jesus hears and his, even his disciples also thought of. And so Jesus gives these series of kingdom parables to sort of turn their expectations and ours upside down. Jesus says that his kingdom would come with power, but that power wouldn't come and twist arms, but rather its message would turn hearts. This kingdom would grow but not with a lot of fanfare. In fact, its growth would be as stealthy as leaven working through a lump of dough. And unlike other kingdoms, this one wouldn't have a geographical center. It wouldn't belong to one people group, but it would actually grow to fill the whole world and be comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What Jesus wanted them and us to see is that his kingdom is established wherever his salvation is received by faith. And so today we're going to turn our attention and see how Jesus concludes his teachings on the kingdom. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go before the Lord and ask his help in understanding and applying it this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to parables that seem simple, straightforward. And Lord, as we know from our experience with your teachings, uh, there's far more below the surface than meets the eye. And so what we need more than anything is to see you and your kingdom clearly, and that can't happen without the power of your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, this morning, uh, in spite of a flawed messenger, uh, Lord, I pray that you would make your kingdom clear. Uh, that you would make the reality of the gospel fresh to us again, that you would even move people from death to life this morning by your power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these verses, we really have a total of four parables, and each parable is pretty short, but as I mentioned, they all have a lot more to them than meets the eye. So this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time in the first two parables because they really go hand in hand, and Jesus tells both of these to make one point. And then at the end, we're going to spend a short amount of time on the last two parables. So let's pick up with those first two again. And this will be point number one, the infinite value of the kingdom. The infinite value of the kingdom. In the first parable, Jesus describes a man walking through a field. Just an ordinary man walking through an ordinary field on an ordinary day. But on this particular day, what he found in this field was far from ordinary. He found buried treasure. You probably remember when you were a child, you would go and dig in the yard. And this was always the hope, right, is that you would dig in the right spot and find some hidden treasure that had been lost in time. I think the closest I ever got was like a Folgers can. But this guy actually finds a real treasure. He stumbles upon something of immense value. And this isn't out of the realm of possibility. In the ancient world, if you had something valuable, there weren't any banks around that you could just go and put this stuff in a safety deposit box. And the risk of war or robbery uh, meant that hiding it in your home was a risky proposition. So what do you do? How do you keep something valuable safe? So you'd go and find a spot on your property that only you knew about, and you would go and bury it to keep it safe. And over the years... Things like unexpected deaths and wars that cause land to change hands many times. Eventually, this treasure was forgotten. And so when this man stumbled upon it, he did what any of us would do if we were honest. He quickly covered it up, and he realized that this field had just become a lot more valuable. He needed to buy it so that he could have the treasure. Now, it needs to be said that Jesus is not giving an ethics lesson here. He's not giving us a lesson on good, wise business practices. He doesn't address whether it was right or wrong for this person to go and sell all that he had and buy this field without disclosing to the owner that there was hidden treasure. He doesn't do that. No, the point of the parable is that when this man saw the value of the treasure he found, he would stop at nothing to make it his own. He had to have it. And Jesus picks up that same point in the second parable. Here Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. In the ancient world, this was one of the most precious commodities you could own. They were difficult to find. They were extremely pricey, often valued in the millions of dollars in today's money. And this man was a merchant. This is someone that knew fine pearls. He knew a good one when he saw it. 
And after searching diligently, at last he found the pearl to put all the others to shame. And he did exactly what the owner of, or, or what the man who found the treasure in a field did. He went and sold everything he had to go and buy this treasure that he had found. And this, Jesus says, is what the kingdom is like. And what does he mean by that? A few things. First, he's telling us something about the value of this kingdom. See, in the case of treasure in a field, perhaps thousands of people had stomped all over this treasure, walked through this field hundreds of times over the years and had no idea what was just below their feet. Where many saw an ordinary field that was relatively unspectacular, this man saw something different, something that was worth selling everything else to have. And the same is true of the pearl. See, both of these treasures were objectively valuable, even if that value wasn't recognized by everyone. And friends, this is not true of Jesus and his kingdom. Think about his birth. Jesus being born in a barn to a teenage girl and a bewildered fiancé. And we're told that Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And we all emphasize the fact that he's laid in a feeding trough. It doesn't seemingly get much worse than that. Talk about humble beginnings. But even that idea of him being wrapped in swaddling cloths by his mother. Now, I've only been in a delivery room one time, but it's a fairly traumatic experience from what I've heard. Women really got the short end of the deal post-fall, okay? And typically, after that event is over with, there is someone who takes the baby for the mom and wraps the child up and cleans him up. Mary is so utterly alone that this woman, after giving birth to her son, is now the one that's charged with wrapping him in swaddling cloths. Humble beginnings. What most people would see here is a pitiable story. One of poverty and one of fear and sadness. But for those who have seen the kingdom, what we see is God taking on flesh. God coming to tabernacle among us. Think about his crucifixion. A death reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. Designed to inflict maximum pain and prolong the suffering of its victims. And what many have seen when they gaze at Christ on the cross there is they see a revolutionary progressive leader who was oppressed by the powers that be and silenced. But those who have seen the kingdom see a king laying down his life as a ransom for many, shedding his blood to provide real forgiveness for real sinners. For those who have seen the kingdom, that cross was designed to render its victim powerless and humiliated. But we know that it did exactly the opposite. That because Jesus obeyed even to the point of death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name so that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Think about the early church. Followers of Jesus that we see gathered together in Acts. What many then saw was sort of a, an outlier movement. After all, their leader was dead. The leaders that were left were unlearned blue-collar men. Their followers were mostly comprised of social outcasts and poor people. And yet those who have seen the kingdom 
we look back and see the wisdom of God on display, working his strength through weak men, uniting people from every kind of background into one new family. Those who have been given eyes to see the kingdom have seen past initial appearances. They've seen something below the surface, something beautiful and valuable, where many have simply stomped all over it over the years and seen nothing spectacular. Jesus is showing us that the kingdom is immensely valuable despite its initial appearances. Secondly, it also shows us that these parables, what it looks like to receive the kingdom. It's not an uncommon thing to hear in the church, and maybe this is your story, that the reason someone started to seek God or stumble onto him was because of an acute need in their life. Maybe it was a difficult circumstance or a struggle of some kind or a loss. But there's some kind of acute suffering, some dire circumstance, and that's what makes people start seeking after God. And so maybe they come in thinking that a nice dose of Christianity will help with X, fill in the blank. You think initially that God will stay in this one confined corner of your life and help you in one particular area that you want him to. But if you've really encountered the God of the Bible, that is not how it goes at all. C.S. Lewis describes this experience in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's gathering the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Why? C.S. Lewis answers. He says, because he intends to come and live in it himself. In the example that Lewis gives, the homeowner gets to go from a cottage to a palace. It's an obvious trade, one that any of us would make. But it is far more than he initially wanted, and it required him relinquishing his initial plans. The cottage he thought he wanted had to go away so the palace could take shape. Jesus is showing us in both of these parables, as Tim Keller says, that our admissions and our ambitions are too small. We come to God thinking that we need a little help in this area or that area. And our goal is to have our life just like it is, just a little more comfortable with a little less suffering. But what these men and the treasure they found, what they show, and again, it's worth pointing out that one finds this by accident and one by searching, which can also be translated by investigating, by interrogating even. Both of these men, for both of them, the treasure they found was more valuable than their wildest dreams, and it required everything to have it. But I want you to notice that they only sold everything because they had seen the treasure and they did it joyfully. So the message of the gospel this morning for you and for me is not go do something radical to earn the kingdom. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that once you have seen the value of the king and his kingdom, you will be radically different. 
Once you see the value of the king and his kingdom, you won't stop at nothing to have it. So, friend, if there's anything in you that says, I will follow Jesus up until this point. As long as he doesn't ask me to do this thing, then you have not seen the beauty of the kingdom. If you say, sure, I'll trust Jesus, but I still need to make sure I'm a good person so that God loves me. You haven't seen the beauty of the king and his kingdom. If you are comfortable in sin, not wrestling with sin, but if you are comfortable staying there, then friends, you have not seen the beauty of the king and his kingdom. If you come to Jesus just wanting him to be a nice little addition to your already comfortable life, rather than being Lord of every part of your life, then friends, you haven't seen the beauty of the king and his kingdom. You haven't seen the life that he offers you to the full. What Jesus wants to give us is far better than the things that we cling to. He wants to take our petty ambitions and our half-hearted admissions of need, and he wants to transform us all the way down to the core to make us the kind of people who joyfully say yes to the king and to everything he asks of us. And how does he do that? He does this by showing us the treasure, by showing us himself. So what that means for me and you is that our greatest need, the need that is underneath all of the other needs we think we have, is we need to see Jesus and his kingdom clearly. And so this morning, what a better thing to pray, certainly as we approach the Lord's table for communion, is we need to come before the Lord confessing our half-hearted need our admissions that are too small, that aren't honest about how big our problem really is. We need to come to Jesus and confess that our ambitions aren't big enough, that we want to settle for the cottage and he wants to build the palace. We need to come and confess that Jesus has not been our greatest treasure. And we need to do that because, as Jesus shows in this next parable, is that the day for choosing will come to a close. And our decisions will be final. This moves us to our next point, the the peril of rejecting the kingdom. Here in this parable, the parable of the net, Jesus describes, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he says, it's like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish from every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. This would have made perfect sense to his disciples, many of whom were fishermen. Uh, When we think about fishing, we think about going down to like Lake Mitchell, right, with a cane pole, reel and rod, right, and we have specific bait for specific kinds of fish, and we are fishing for one thing. That's not how fishing worked in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the way they fished was they would take a great net and cast it out into the sea and drag this net through the water, and they would either pull it aboard their boat or they would pull it on the shore And as you can imagine, you get a little bit of everything. You get some fish that are worth keeping. You get some fish that are not worth keeping. If this were happening in our day, you would also pull up, you know, a boat and motor, a Bud Light can, a Jack's cup. But here, right, he says that they pull in good fish and bad fish. And Jesus says this is how the kingdom is like this. He said, verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fire furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And Jesus says that at the end of the age, the kingdom will be brought to a close, that the day of choosing will come to an end, and our decision will be final. And so he says that at that point, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they are going to sort the good fish from the bad, the wicked from the righteous. Now the question is there, what separates the good from the bad? What separates the wicked from the righteous? And friends, we can't divorce one of Jesus' parables from his others, or the teachings of one passage from the teaching of the rest of Scripture. What separates the good and the bad, the wicked from the righteous, is not that the wicked were necessarily worse people. What separates the good from the bad, the wicked from the righteous, is what they did with the message of the kingdom. It's what they did with Jesus, with the gospel. Friends, on this day when the kingdom is brought to a close, there are going to be many who thought they were Christians because they lived their life guided by a certain moral code or had certain political convictions or avoided certain types of sins. And they're going to be shocked to find out that they are in the wrong net, that they are being cast out into a place of utter darkness and eternal torment. Not because they're worse people, but because they rejected the message of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives another parable about judgment and the reality of hell. In this parable, you don't have to flip there right now, but you can make a note to go back and read it later. Jesus tells this parable about a rich man who goes unnamed and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man was decked out in fine purple clothes. He ate the finest food, lived in the finest home. And Lazarus was a, was a beggar with sores all over his body. So dire was his condition that he would sit at the gate and beg for food that fell off of the rich man's table and dogs would come and lick his sores. And Jesus says that both men die. And Lazarus, the poor man, is carried into the presence of all the saints, seated next to Abraham, and the rich man is sent to Hades. And the rich man can look across this chasm and see Lazarus at the side of Abraham. And the rich man's experiencing incredible torment, and he, he cries out to Abraham, Will you send Lazarus to just dip his finger in cool water and bring it to me? And Abraham says, No, no one can cross this chasm. You received your treasure on earth. Lazarus lived a pitiful existence on earth and now gets to experience his treasure. And then the man says, Okay, well, if you can't help me, then will you please send Lazarus to my five brothers? Will you go tell them so that at least they don't have to experience the same outcome that I do? And Abraham says, they have the prophets. They have the word of God. And if they won't believe the word of God, then they wouldn't believe it if a man came back from the dead and told them. Friends, Going back to the parable of the pearl and the hidden treasure. I want you to think about how ridiculous it would have been for someone to stumble on this treasure hidden in a field and go, that's not worth my time. Take way too much effort. After all, for them to go and sell everything would have meant not just going to the bank and taking out a loan, not going and withdrawing some money from savings. It says that he went and sold everything he had. He had to liquidate everything that he owned. That would have meant family heirlooms, things that were precious to him. Imagine if they would have said, 
not worth my time. That's going to be too difficult. What if they would have said, you know, I don't know that I'm up for taking the ridicule of other people. If I really go sell everything, I'm going to be a joke when I go to the market and start selling off on my family possessions. We would say, what a short-sighted fool. You had the offer of immense treasure, and you weren't willing to turn loose of what is temporary and fleeting to have something more valuable. Friends, the reason why Jesus, I believe, includes this parable, because I already talked about judgment in the parable of the weeds that we looked at a few weeks ago. The reason why I think Jesus includes this parable here is because he wants to press home the finality of judgment. There is going to be a day where there is no more choice to be made. Where the offer of having Christ as your treasure is not an offer anymore. And in that day, you will have exactly what you treasured all along. You will have exactly what you wanted forever. And in that day, it will be not just torment, but conscious torment as we saw in Luke 16 you will have a very clear picture of the life that you lived, the things you could have done differently, and the people you could have guided down a different path forever. What a terrifying, sobering thought. So moms, dads, I want to encourage you here that there is a reality greater than all of your other ambitions for your children. They're watching to see what you treasure. Your day of choosing and theirs will be over one day. Coworkers, family members, friends. This offer only lasts so long. See the reality of the peril of rejecting the kingdom and don't make a short-sighted, foolish choice. And that brings us to our next point. Stewarding the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus asks his disciples a question. Verse 51, he says, have you understood all these things? And I love that the disciples just say, yep, got it. Here we are 2,000 years later still writing commentaries, trying to understand the depth of Jesus' parables. These guys hear it one time and go, check, got it. He says, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. And he says this really perplexing, really short parable. He says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So he says that the kingdom of heaven, this, or excuse me, that, uh, that a, a scribe who is trained for the kingdom. Now, a scribe was an expert in the law, the Old Testament law. They knew the Old Testament better than anyone. But Jesus says that this isn't just any scribe. It's a scribe trained for the kingdom. And that they're like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what's old. So a master of a house, they would have a, a storehouse where they would store food that had been preserved. So that when it wasn't growing season, they still had things to eat. And the master of the house, it was their responsibility to bring out of that storehouse to feed those that were in their charge, under their care. And he says, scribes who are trained for the kingdom get to bring out of that storehouse and feed other people not just what is old, but also what is new. Jesus is saying that scribes, his disciples, these men and us, people who have seen the kingdom and who have been brought into the kingdom, 
we now have all of the teachings of the prophets, everything that is old, and we get to see its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And it is our privilege, our responsibility as masters of the house to bring out of our storehouse what is new and what is old to feed those around us. See, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in all of Scripture. And that's not to scare people into the kingdom. The reason why Jesus presses this reality home is because that offer is still a valid offer. And you and I get to be sent out as scribes of the kingdom to go and bring this good news to those who do not yet have it. Now, what is this good news? What is it that we're carrying out to people? If you would, flip over to Isaiah 53. This is a prophet writing hundreds of years before Jesus came onto the scene. And he was prophesying about the Messiah that would come, the one who would come and bring salvation to God's people. I want you to hear what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. He says, For who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. So there's the, there's the upside-down nature of the king, right? That this Messiah would have no form or majesty of appearance. He wasn't a guy that, you, that, that was turning heads going down the street. Not only was he overlooked, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Saying, we had the king, the king and his kingdom, the treasure, and we esteemed him not. We overlooked the treasure that was there. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Only like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on us the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, don't miss this. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. And the Lord will prosper and, and the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By knowledge, my servant, the righteous one, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah says that this servant who is coming onto the scene is going to be someone that we overlook. We're going to miss the treasure. 
And yet, he is going to lay down his life as a guilt offering for many. Friends, here's the really good news for us, is that Jesus does not ask us to do something that he himself does not do. When we hear in these first two parables that receiving the kingdom will will require us to loosen our grip on everything that we hold dear, that would be a really terrifying thought if Jesus hadn't done it first. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about how Jesus receives an inheritance from the nation's people. What Jesus wanted for his obedience was individuals gathered into his family. And I don't know about you, but I'm not much of a prize. I'm a pretty lousy inheritance. All that Jesus has gone through, and he gets me, and no offense, but you? That's what he wants? And yet Isaiah says that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus let go of his immense wealth, the worship of a myriad of angels, and came and made himself poor. Emptied himself of all dignity and glory so that he could take up a cross and a crown of thorns and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, he made you his treasure, his pearl of great value. He made you his treasure in a field that he was willing to sell everything to possess. When we see that kingdom, when we see that king, it will loosen our grip on everything else that we hold dear. It will transform us all the way to the core. And so my question to you is the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Have you understood these things? Have you believed them? I hope that you do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the thought that we would be a pearl of great value in your eyes, a treasure hidden in a field that you'd be willing to sell everything to possess, Lord, that is not the kind of king or the kind of kingdom that we would expect. And yet, Lord, in spite of our sin, you came and gave yourself at great cost to make us your own. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people of determination. People who prioritize, who see the great sacrifice of our king, and it's a no-brainer that if you put everything the world has to offer on one side of the scale and King Jesus on the other, that you would help us to recognize that that scale tips in Jesus' favor every single time. Lord, help us to see our true treasure and to shape our life around it. Loosen our grip on everything else that we hold dear. Because just like these men... We're going to gain far more than we ever gave up. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We ask it all in your name. Amen.